Hi, everybody. Marlene McNabb, my guest today. She's a mother, a grandmother, and a professor of Indigenous social work at First Nations University in Canada. Marlene has navigated intergenerational trauma stemming from her ancestors being forced to attend Indian residential schools. The intention, of course, was to strip away Indigenous language, culture, and identity. Not only did it impact her ancestors, but it left the future generations with a sense of cultural shame, self-hatred, and it ultimately turned into addiction and violence. Marlene's story is one of resilience. She's clean and sober since age 24. She's done personal work to heal both her life, but also the ancestors and the future generations. And she has devoted her life to truth-telling, healing, and caring for her community and family. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. Hello, Marlene McNabb. Welcome to the show. Hello, Sharon. So happy to have you here. Marlene, I'm going to jump right in because your words are so impactful when I hear them, when I read them. And I want to start with a sentence that I read that you wrote that just spoke so deeply to me. You were talking about the process, and you said that part of the impact was that you knew that without a doubt, you had mended a broken link in your family chain, and you restored it for all of you. I find that so profound. Can you tell us more what you meant by that? Yes, I can. What I meant by that is when I did my process, you know, I came to realize during a moment of, of journaling and, and uh, prayer, you know, that I had, you know, spent my life feeling responsible for the mistakes I had made as a mother and, you know, had grown quite self-punishing over the years and full of the regret and a lot of remorse. And when I did my process, and I was able to, you know, heal the rift between my mother and I, I realized that my mother had also inherited the patterns that she had passed on to me, and that I had passed on to my children. So as this healing took place, you know, within myself, You know, I came to the awareness that I was not only healing, you know, these patterns for myself, but I was also extending this healing to my mother and my grandmothers. And I was also passing this down to my children and my grandchildren. How old were your kids 
in the moment when you did the process and had this realization? I would say they were young adults around 18, 19, 20 years old. And, you know, it, it, it had been a, a long journey of, of healing for me. And, you know, over the years, I, I had come to terms with a lot, you know, in my recovery. But I was also seeing the, the damage, you know, that intergenerational patterns had, had created in, in their lives as well. Were they receptive to the change that happened for you? Yeah, and, and we're talking, you know, we're spanning a, a lifetime of, of recovery, it seems, because um, I um, was able to, you know, get on a path of recovery when my children were four and two years old. So I had spent quite a few years raising them in a, in a fairly stable and secure environment. But that's not to say that these multi-generational cycles weren't still running in the background, you know, because they were. And so I, I, was, I was spending a lot of time, you know, working through, you know, different layers of, of trauma in, in particular, you know, attempting to come to terms with what I had been through um, myself and also what my family members had been through, having attended Indian residential schools here in Canada. So am I right in hearing that here you were taking responsibility for your life? Your kids are young, four and two. You got yourself sober, which is easier said than done. And you notice still these things are running in the background, these intergenerational patterns. Was it that that brought you to the process to heal those intergenerational patterns? Absolutely. More importantly, what brought me to the process was uh, my mother had been diagnosed with cancer and, you know, she and I had had, you know, a troubled relationship and I found myself replicating the same relationship with my oldest daughter and it disturbed me beyond words, you know, to, to, to see that I was doing to my daughter, you know, what had been done to me. So it became really important for me to heal this relationship with my mother um, so that I could you know, make things right between my daughter and I. If I was in a classroom right now, this is the moment where I would say, how many people in this room feel similarly about seeing themselves do to their kids what was done to them? And it's one of those moments where most everybody raises their hands. Well, they sure do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the um, Indian residential schools and the intergenerational patterns were was part of the addiction in the first place to numb that out and did you end up feeling a lot more of that once you became sober absolutely i experienced a lot of trauma as did my parents and grandparents and i can't speak for my great grandparents because i didn't know them when i was a child uh, they had passed on but i do know that we inherited a lot of intergenerational trauma so during my adolescence, when I developed addiction, I was reacting to a lot of this unhealed trauma as a young person. After getting clean and sober, I was no longer using uh, substances to cope with my feelings, but I was still experiencing uh, post-acute withdrawal symptoms and um, still having a lot of difficulty uh, with these unhealed trauma patterns. And the process, income, the process, how did you hear about the process? 
I'd actually read about it in a, in a magazine that um, our local health food store would put out every two months. Um, I saw a black and white advertisement about the Hoffman quadrinity model. And at the time when I looked at it, I was curious because, you know, it spoke to the four uh, quadrants, the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And that appealed to me because of my own Indigenous background and how we use the medicine wheel, which is made up of four quadrants, you know, to, to govern our behavior, uh, to heal ourselves, and it's part of our worldview. And so is it one of those things where you're able to overlay the quadrinity model that we have with the medicine wheel that you use? Yes, I, I, I really, I was able to do that. I was able to relate to the Hoffman process because of this overlay. And it appealed to me for that reason, because a lot of um, the trauma healing work that I had done up to that point, uh, a lot of the Western modalities that I was using, they didn't necessarily pay any attention to, to the spiritual life of a person or healing that disconnection. And I found that in, in my recovery, that was the most important piece because, you know, I hadn't been aware in my early recovery, you know, that trauma disconnects you, you know, from your spiritual self. So healing this part of me was, was essential to, you know, maintaining uh, sobriety as well as creating, you know, a better life, you know, for myself and my children. Beautiful. Trauma disconnects us from our spiritual selves. Yes, it does. And so you also mentioned uh, in one of our past conversations that the process had an impact on how you do your work in the world. What do you do in the world? Um, currently, I'm an assistant professor at the First Nations University of Canada at the Regina campus, and I'm teaching Indigenous social work. And I've also had a private practice as a community-based mental health therapist for the past 30 years. So I've maintained that private practice, you know, throughout my teaching career. And, you know, it's something that, um, you know, I learned so much, you know, from that experience, from, from being, you know, working what I would consider to be on the front lines. Um, I've worked in a lot of uh, First Nations communities here in Saskatchewan. And in doing so, I've been witness to a lot of you know, the traumas that, um, you know, my, my community and members of my community have experienced firsthand as we're, as we're you know, overcoming, you know, uh, centuries of, of, of colonialism. And, and how we term that type of healing is that we're decolonizing at this point and we're embracing our cultures and uh, reclaiming our spirituality. And this is not a pan-Indigenous movement by any stretch, because our, our ceremonies, our ceremonies survived, you know, centuries of darkness. Um, so we've been able to access, you know, the ceremonies and the life ways that our ancestors lived at one time. And you have your own story of how, how you were led. You went to First Nations University as a student, too, right? I did, and back then it was called the Saskatchewan Indian Federated College, and I attended the Saskatoon campus, uh, where I obtained a bachelor's degree in Indigenous social work. And then I was in the field for 15 years, so I worked for my community, which is the George Gordon First Nation, 
I worked for them for 13 years, and it was there when I witnessed the last federally funded Indian residential school basically get torn down. Those were really challenging but fulfilling years, and there's nothing like working for your own community for a person to grow and develop and mature and become you know, the person that I believe the creator meant for me to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck. I have, I have two, two questions. Um, one, I wouldn't mind, if, if you're up for it, just kind of a brief, in case people are listening and they don't know what an Indian residential school is. Our people here in Canada are learning of what an Indian residential school is. Uh, for Indigenous people across Canada, we, we know what they are. These were uh, church-operated, government-run boarding schools. And when they were first um, built across Canada, it, it was mandatory for Indigenous children to attend. So they were basically taken, uh, forcibly taken from their, from their parents and placed in these schools as young as the age of four up to the age of 16. So many, many of our, our people spent their entire lives, their childhoods, their adolescence in these schools. And these schools were meant to strip language, to strip away culture, uh, to strip away connection to family and community. And basically, Indigenous identity. And these schools use uh, corporal punishment to teach children. Um, they also forced uh, different forms of Christianity, you know, onto, onto the children. The schools themselves, there was a lot of sexual abuse, like I mentioned, corporal punishment, physical abuse, emotional, and of course, a lot of name-calling, put-downs. And when this happens to a child, you know, the child is, is you know, is, is taught, you know, to, to, to self-hate to be full of self-loathing. And it's a difficult topic, you know, to speak of, knowing that I did attend, knowing my parents attended, and, and so on. And I think it's important because people generally believe that, you know, we should get over it. You know, there, there's this narrative out, out in the public that we should get over it and that we should move on and, you know, not be fixated on this part of history. And yet so much of what we're experiencing today, you know, the poverty, the homelessness, the addiction, a lot of the, the suffering that Indigenous people are experiencing are the result of intergenerational cycles, you know, from these residential schools. And, you know, certainly for myself as a child, you know, I knew that things weren't safe in my family. I knew growing up that my parents you know, struggled more than others, and they struggled with addiction, and there was a lot of family violence in my home. You know, I'd go to school, and I'd see other kids, and, you know, they didn't grow up like that. So I knew that something was terribly wrong with, with how things were growing up. Developing addiction was a way of, of numbing, numbing that reality, of disconnecting from the pain and the suffering. And, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to, you know, to, to hit a hard enough bottom that I was, I was ready, you know, to get clean and sober in my mid-20s. And it was probably, you know, previous to that, you know, as, a, as an adolescent that I had an interest in spirituality, for one thing, 
after getting getting clean and sober, I knew I wanted to do something different. I wanted to get an education and, and be able to help help my children um, to make a difference in their lives. You know, to make things better for us, uh, because we, you know, we we were we were struggling. I was a single parent. My relationships didn't work out, and I knew that I had brought children into the world, and I needed to look after them and give them the best life I could possibly give them. I don't know how to express this because I'm I'm so overwhelmed with it. Here you are confronting addiction within the intergenerational trauma, which is real within a system that is not necessarily handing you a silver spoon or making it easy for you to be clean and sober and present and an active member of the society. How did you do it? What was the driver? How, how did you stay on that path? Yeah, I, was, I was really fortunate because when I went to the Saskatchewan Indian Federated College, I went to a university that gave me an opportunity to to reclaim my culture. And in reclaiming my culture, um, it was an experiential learning and an experiential process where I went into ceremonies and I was able to make conscious contact, you know, with what I consider to be my higher power, my loving creator. And the ancestors that, you know, that lived and, and breathed amongst our people you know, long before colonialism took place, to be able to connect to, to those life ways and, and to the strength. You know, and I want to say something about strength because it took incredible strength to be able to get clean and sober. And I didn't I didn't know that I had so much of, of that of that ability to to turn things around. So I used that strength and I maintained that strength over the years. And I look around and I see a lot of, you know, my people, a lot of First Nations people that have incredible strength to overcome, you know, adversity and tapping into that resilience where, you know, the suffering didn't destroy us. We were able to overcome it. How do you metabolize seeing the members in your community who are not able to have that resilience because I, I'm not in your shoes, but I can imagine just how hard it is to tap into that. Do you witness many members of your communities experiencing addiction, violence in the families, and not overcoming it? Yes, I do. Probably one of the most profound processes that I you know, had to heal was, was learning how to grieve. I never, I never knew how to grieve growing up. And I realized, you know, after, you know, getting clean and sober and getting in touch with my emotions, uh, just how much grief I had, you know, how much unshed tears, you know, I kept inside from not being able to acknowledge, you know, all of the losses and, you know, the difficulties you know, that I had witnessed. And, you know, so when I see, you know, my people succumbing to some of these, to the suffering, I, I see how important it is for me to continue that grieving process. Because sometimes that's all I can do is, is just acknowledge that, 
the grief is real and it's something that it's a living energy that I need to consistently release. And I'm very fortunate that, that I have elders and I have people that I can turn to and the ceremonies that I can go into to actively breathe and allow myself to release, you know, that suffering. Because I do have family members that I've lost uh, directly and indirectly due to addiction. So this is something that, that I live with even today. Are my, a lot of my relatives don't die from natural causes. You know, they die from addiction-related deaths. And because they're my relatives, I, I know their history. I know what they've been through as, as young people. Not being able to heal that trauma has, has become my life's work. I'm also currently a PhD student in public policy. And my life purpose has been around, you know, helping people overcome and work through intergenerational trauma so that addiction needn't take lives unnecessarily and continuously. It's almost like you're walking this multidimensional line where you give space for the grief, you give space for the tears, the sadness, the losses, because they're real, but you don't let it own you. You are also channeling your life's work, your life's purpose. How do I impact the next generation? How do I, to use your word, mend the broken link for the future generations and for the ancestors, all while giving space for the actual grief that is still there? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly how it works. It's, 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 it's like not ignoring the truth. That is the truth, and it's, and it's complex, but that is the truth. There is sadness and grief and tears, but also here's how I'm going to, here's how I'm going to mend this broken link. Exactly. And, you know, if I, if I didn't have a sense of compassion, you know, for myself, I, I may never have, have gotten this far, but I learned compassion, you know, early on. And it's this compassion that has, has been a driving force. In, in helping me to hold space for myself and for others, you know, to heal. And it is, it takes a lot of compassion to tell the truth and to hold space for the truth because people generally don't want to look, you know, what trauma has done to people because it's so painful and it's so unpleasant. And yet, you know, in order to heal it, we need to feel that compassion and we need to have that understanding so that we never allow this to happen again. And, and what we're doing is we're really standing up to the racism that allowed Indian residential schools to be built in the first place. You know, so we're dealing with that and we're in a position now where I can call it out. I can do so, you know, with, with an inner strength that cultivated over the years. And I'm grateful for it. I'm moved by how you answered the question of what an Indian residential school was. It Again, it was that beautiful balance of, I'm, I'm going to give you a dose of truth, and I'm going to do it with compassion. I'm going to do it with honesty. I'm going to do it with whatever genuine feeling I have. It's going to feel grounded, and it's going to be truthful. It wasn't sugar-coated. It wasn't, there was just a, a grounded truth in even how you spoke of something so wrong and painful. 
you know, I believe that by being compassionate, I'm, I'm inviting, you know, the other person to put themselves in, in my shoes or the shoes of my mother or my grandmother to get a sense of how they experience, you know, the world, you know, when, when their children were taken from them. And, you know, today, I mean, it's 2021. Today we have the child welfare system that is a replacement for Indian residential schools. In Canada, especially at the height of Indian residential schools, our current population of children in care exceeds the children that were in Indian residential schools. So I find that mind-boggling that these policies continue to play out. I think you brought up a beautiful point about having compassion for self and therefore being able to see truth. And that's on both sides, right? In order for us to move, we all need to acknowledge the truth. Ignoring it is not working. Ignoring it produces what you just said. It's the same thing, just packaged differently. That's what ignoring it gets us. So we have to look at it. We have to, we have to own it and name it. Yes, ignoring it feeds into the anger and the resistance. As long as there are people ignoring the truth or not wanting to face it, there's going to continue to be anger and resistance as well, which I believe is the flip side of, of compassion and, and understanding. So I, I want to, um, to talk about one other thing, um, which is how what a beautiful grandmother you are and how this is continuing to play out right this is not a hypothetical philosophical thing for you this is how you live your life even in your family unit can you share with us i know that you are currently raising two grandkids and i'd, I'd love for you to share the story of that yes i you know i became a grandmother and in my in my language which is the Nehewa language I call myself a cookum. So my grandchildren referred to me as cookum. And I became a cookum in 2010. You know, shortly after one of my grandchildren was born, my granddaughter, I became aware that her mother was having significant struggles. I realized, you know, after probably within that first year of my granddaughter's, uh, you know, coming into the world, that um, her mother was struggling with addiction, and she was a third-generation uh, foster care survivor. So this this was bit, this was troubling for me because I realized that her attachment system had been impaired as a child. So when it came to my granddaughter, her attachment to my granddaughter wasn't strong, and it broke my heart because I realized that when her and my son lost custody of my granddaughter. She didn't have that attachment, you know, and, and that, that fight or that will, you know, to get her back um, out of foster care. And I didn't want my granddaughter raised in a foster home because I'm, I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for many years. And I'm aware of uh, what foster homes and what the foster care system can do to Indigenous children. Um, so my husband and I uh, took this little girl into our home, you know, with the understanding that we would maintain kinship with both um, her dad and her mom. 
and that she would always know that she was connected to her parents. Interestingly, it's not unusual for grandparents to raise their grandchildren, even without these cycles repeating themselves in our lives. Uh, But for us, uh, our grandchildren came to us because these cycles, these cycles of addictions in particular, resulted in our grandkids being apprehended. So today we're raising them, and, and they're both 10 years old today. It's part of life, and it's part of you know, coming to terms with, with these cycles and making the best uh, of a situation that took place long before even I was born, you know, because I had, I had no idea that I would be raising my, my grandchildren someday. Ideally, I would have been that cocoon that goes and spoils them and then, and then runs home again and, you know, until, until next time. But it's fine. It's okay. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's an expression of the authenticity, truth, commitment, alignment between your words and what you stand for and how you show up in the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. Curious what it's like to parent again. You know, it's a lot easier. I've become much calmer and, you know, I don't get stressed out like I did when I was a young mother. So it's a lot easier. My husband and I were a great team. One of, the, one of the beautiful things about being a grandmother, and I, and I never knew this, but I had heard stories that um, when you become a grandmother, you actually love even more than you did when you were a parent. And I believe that. I, really, I believe that because I have felt it. I remember when my first grandchild was born, my capacity to love, you know, just it grew immensely. And, you know, there's something just really sweet about being a grandparent that I get to experience. I hope to have a few more grandchildren before, you know, my time on earth is, is done. And certainly I, I hope to see great-grandchildren down the road. Well, uh, Marlene, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your story, both ancestrally and how you are living out your life and and setting up the future generations. It is truly moving, and I'm so honored that you are here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Cher. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi. Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.